Welcome to the podcast, Byzantium and Friends, episode 85. I am Anthony, your host. Before we begin the show today, I have a quick announcement. You may recall back from episode 48, I spoke with Alexander Lingus about Byzantine music, um, and he is one of the uh, co-founders and organizers of Byzantine choir uh, named Capella Romana. They have a new recording that's just about to be released. It's called A Byzantine Emperor at King Henry's Court, um, and it is music historically associated with the time period around 1400 when the uh, Emperor Manuel II Palaiologos visited Western Europe. He went to France, England. I uh, was trying to get help for Constantinople. Um, didn't succeed in that, but his journey nevertheless provided some very interesting sort of moments of cultural exchange. And this is a recording that uh, I think aims to capture that moment from music um, with music from both sides. It was uh, brought to my attention by Siren Chalik, another guest of the podcast. Um, so thank you, Siren. Um, you can find this at uh, yeah, Capella Romana, no, CapellaRecords.com, and I'm sure other places. All right, now on to our show today. So in the 17th century in France, there was an interesting debate that started about the relative value of ancient culture versus emerging modern European culture. You know, think especially sort of France in its sort of imperial heyday in the 17th century. And this is a debate that goes under the conventional title of the quarrel of the ancients and the moderns. And I'm going to simplify it considerably here, but it basically had to do originally with like literature and aesthetic and cultural values. Um, you know, and some people were arguing, you know, why are we constantly harping on the ancient classics when, you know, modern Europeans read French are you know, producing work that's just as good and, you know, forging new paths, new directions. Uh, you know, why are we constantly fixated on the past? And this obviously produced a range of responses uh, in, in favor of the ancient classics. Okay, <laughs> obviously there were all, they were debating um, other contemporary issues, um, you know, that you know, cut close to the pol- political and social controversies of the time. Uh, Antiquity is a very good sort of surrogate for having a otherwise contentious or difficult conversation. You can sort of step outside and have it in the ancient world or in a comparison with the ancient world um, and kind of discuss the underlying issues indirectly that way. Still good for that. Anyway, this set off a whole chain of thinking um, in early modern Europe about when exactly did the civilization of Western Europe reach the general standards of the ancient Roman Empire, and that eventually expanded to include the volume of trade, demography, technology, scientific thought, and so forth. It was a sense, certainly by the 18th century, that the most you know, economically developed European countries had surpassed the Roman Empire. But when exactly was that? And by what metrics? And how do you understand that? You can see this question so playing out in the background, even of the thought of like Edward Gibbon as he's working through the fall of the Roman Empire narrative, where he very frequently looks to modern Europe. Now, most of this debate was configured in what we can call positive terms, right? Like the Roman Empire had reached some sort of peak 
of economic development, of demography, of trade, of like, military power, scientific application, and so forth. And like, when are we going to reach that peak? But especially during the 20th century, the flip side of that equation was also um, studied that, in a sense, the Roman Empire produced all kinds of inequities and injustices and environmental damage and pollution and trash heaps um, that were you know, enormous on a very large scale. There's a huge trash heap right outside of Rome itself, which has its own name as a mountain. It's Monte Testaccio. So other factors came into play here, like deforestation, mass population movement through slavery, all of that. Today we're going to be talking about one of the grimmest aspects of Roman civilization, uh, understanding Roman in an extended sense, so into late antiquity and early Byzantium, an aspect that is not discussed very much outside of specialist circles, and even there is very specialized, and it is, this is the level of lead pollution uh, that existed in the ambient environment in cities near mines, but also just in the air generally. Roman industry sent enormous volumes of lead in the form of particles into the air and the forests and the animals and, and of course, to human bodies. And lead, as we know, is extremely dangerous, and yet there's very little sign that anyone in antiquity understood that any of this was going on, especially on the industrial scale on which it was. So in this sense, yes, Rome did represent a high point, <laughs> that it took um, Western Europe a very long time uh, to catch up to, but, but catch up it did. My guest today is Paul Stevenson. And to many of you, Paul Stevenson requires no introduction. For the past 20 years and more, he has written a series of excellent books on a very wide range of topics um, in Byzantine history, and not only, starting from frontiers to Basel II, including Basel II's reception in modern Greece, generally the modern Balkan period. His work then took a turn toward materiality, um, a bit ahead of the curb uh, in that regard. Um, you know, many fields have taken what's called the material turn now. Uh, he was working on monuments and their materiality, the serpent column uh, in uh, Istanbul, and then also on fountains and water culture. And he's now turning to full-on writing history from a material perspective uh, and, and is planning some fascinating studies on the cultural valence of different materials, which now we also study through some fairly rigorous scientific techniques, um, uh, chemical analysis and health impact and so on. And that's the angle that we're going to be exploring in our discussion of lead and lead pollution today. I'll mention that this topic forms a fairly significant and interesting part of a narrative history that Paul recently published uh, with Harvard. It's called uh, New Rome, the Empire in the East, um, and it looks at the early into middle periods of Byzantine history. And in the first part of that, it definitely integrates um, this uh, aspect of sort of analyzing the chemical impact of lead and presence of lead in the lived environment in a way that was not ever done in traditional history. So we're clearly seeing something new here. This ground is shifting um, in the historical profession and study of pre-modern societies. Uh, so I very much look forward to seeing more of this work. So without any more introduction, here's my conversation with Paul Stevenson.
Paul Stevenson, welcome to the podcast. Hi. So I have to say, you're one of the most versatile scholars in our field that I know. So over the course of the last 20 years, you've gone from working on frontiers. So this is where I first became aware of your work. This is what, 22 years ago? Uh, to um, so diplomatic history, frontiers, emperors, that sort of thing, then to modern reception of Byzantium in modern Greece and England. And after some other projects along the way, you've now turned to material culture. You're working on monuments, uh, the serpent column, then fountains and water culture. And now you're turning to uh, material science and you're working on the material elements out of which sort of this, the stuff of life in the Roman Empire and Byzantium were made of. So can you tell us what has led to your current interest? So what, what pressing issues do you think are being addressed by material science or that you can address through it? Okay. Um, yes. I mean, I think there are probably two strands that run through those 22 years and even the few years before from about 1996 when I started my PhD. So we first met, I think, in 2001 or thereabouts, 2002. Um, one of them is the material culture side of things. Even in the first book that you mentioned, Byzantium's Balkan Frontier and my thesis, that that the approach that I took there was very much to in, try to integrate archaeology and material culture with um, written history, uh, with some elements of art history. And then as I moved into the second phase, the other strand was the reception. And that was something that appeared more strongly in the second book, Basil, The Legend of Basil the Bulgar Slayer. And uh, that integrated more and more art history as well, uh, looking at images of the Bulgar Slayer, um, which were created later, of course, than the, um, the the events described. And so those two those two themes have been present in my work from the beginning. But you're quite right that it really is in recent years that I've placed a great deal more emphasis on material culture and and the more technical aspects of looking at how things were made and why things were made and the reception of those things. I guess the two strands came together in one way looking at the serpent column uh, and we talked about that a great deal in person when i gave a lecture for you at ohio state um back in 2015 perhaps just before mm -hmm. the book came out um and then uh subsequently i i began to take an even greater interest in those the, the material culture side of things and, and materials analysis because my job at the time I was a head of school at the University of Lincoln in the UK, and I happened to be in charge, not just of, by, by in charge, I mean, had budgetary control over, um, and therefore was asked to spend a lot of money on certain things like conservation, because we had not conservation of animals and pandas, although that's important, but conservation of material culture, because we ran the largest um, higher education program in the conservation of material culture in the UK. And most of the people who undertake conservation work in the UK now uh, were trained at the University of Lincoln. I have been over the last 25 years. And so for a number of years, I ran that program and was in charge of all of their labs. And I learned the language that they speak and funded them, or at least gave them the money that historians generated, because history is a cheap subject with lots of students. And conservation was an expensive subject with few students. And so we did a bit of uh, spending money wisely across the disciplines. And so one of the things I really wanted to do was uh, bring more material culture into the history program so that we studied uh, more of the things that we could see on campus that were being brought into the, the labs. 
And uh, therefore, in our promotional materials and the open days we did for the programs we ran, we used to try to show how we cross-fertilized those things. And it allowed me to employ, uh, for the first time, Roman archaeologists, for example, which was a good thing to have in Lincoln because Lincoln is a Roman city and there's a lot of Roman archaeology all around the city. Um, but it wasn't really being exploited within the university. So my my personal interest and my professional interest came together. And because I'd learned a lot about what cons- conservators do, I was able to pick up on some areas where uh, I don't think historians like us um, really were aware of developments and what were aware of what, what we could say about the culture that we've studied for, in our case, 25, 30 years, but hadn't even considered uh, wondering about. Uh, and so that's what led me really to start thinking more about this. And, and I was very fortunate that when we moved back to the States from Lincoln, uh, I took up a position at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and therefore was able to, to continue with this and talk to the conservators there and start thinking more closely about uh, materials analysis and technical analysis of material culture. I remember being struck in your book on the serpent column that you devoted a lot of attention to the material bronze um, and not simply as the material that this particular monument was made of, but just all of its associations and connotations in sort of Greek culture at the time and subsequently. Um, and it really gave me a kind of expanded sense of what you can do with material culture. It, you know, it's not just so the audience might be thinking about, you know, things you do in a lab, but it, it it's also cultural history as well. Um, and so from that to med- very metallurgical analysis, uh, so you've expanded into other, well, let's say metals. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we're going to be talking about today is mostly your recent work on lead. Um, but before we get to that in particular, is there something about metallurgy that sort of drew your attention more? Actually, I know you've also worked on water and other elements, and now you're working on a sort of more multi- multidisciplinary project. Uh, but is there something about metals that drew your attention in particular? And you see I'm wearing appropriate T-shirt. I do, yes. Uh, un- unfortunately, the, uh, the the people listening to your podcast won't see it. Um, yes, serious. I mean, I think that the origins of metallurgy for human societies and civilizations were uniquely destructive to their environments. Um, they might have destroyed a lot of other things by, with the expansion of agriculture, deforestation, etc. But the one thing that human cultures did, each of them, um, in turn. Uh, but at different times, would start making things with metal. And in every case, you start to see enormous deleterious effects on human health and the environment through the smelting of ores and the and the creation of things, beautiful things, and often, of course, which are now in museum collections from cultures around the world, in metals, not least precious metals like gold and silver, which release, in the production of gold and silver, of course, you release huge amounts of um, lead aerosols, which... Uh, go up into the atmosphere and are deposited in your local environment and in many cases thousands of miles kilometers away from the site that they're smelted and so you can see evidence of metallurgy in different parts of the world emerging through uh geomorphically stable places like lake lake beds um peat bogs salt marshes and of course in particular things that grab people's attention ice cores taken out of glaciers in the arctic greenland um, the Antarctic and also places in, in the Alps and elsewhere. So you can begin to see the deposition of lead aerosols, which relate to this uh, emergence of metallurgy. Copper, of course, as well, but, uh, but also lead and, and copper, and later uh, the production of things in lead itself, silver and gold and copper particularly. 
Okay, so let's take the life cycle of lead in human use. Let's take it in order. So why don't you tell us, so where did the people of the Roman Empire get their lead? How was it extracted? And what were the costs of, so especially human and natural, of that process? The uh, the vast majority of, of lead was initially produced um, in the pursuit of silver. Um, people were looking for silver, of mm. course, to um, mint denarii. Um, the Romans took over the production of lead and silver from the Phoenicians uh, when they uh, captured Spain. So the largest and most important lead silver mines in the Roman world uh, were in Spain. And they were captured after the, um, the Punic Wars. And then over time, not immediately, it seems, over time, uh, the Romans learned to use the same processes as the Phoenicians had used, or at least those who the Phoenicians employed in their smelting facilities, the locals used, uh, to make their own. And so you, we find, of course, then it, there is a massive ramping up of the production of silver uh, between the first century BCE and the first century CE. And much of that was to do with the production of the Roman silver denarius. Um, which reaches the height of its fineness at 98% silver, and also the, more of them are minted in pure silver than at any other time at that time. And then the, the production in the uh, Spanish lead silver mines falls away somewhat after that, although it remains in many places extremely important. And then, of course, in the uh, in the 40s of uh, the, the, the common era, uh, the Roman Empire captures Britain and discovers there a whole new source of what it thought would be precious metals. Um, but in, in fact, they discover that the lead mines of uh, Britain really don't have very much silver in them at all, unlike the various mines in Spain, which have a variety of complex ores where silver is present in, in, in abundance. In Britain, the lead ore is principally lead sulfide, galena, in which there is very little silver. Uh, but there was an abundance of lead. And that lead was, was used in the refining of silver anyway, because taking silver out of other ores requires sometimes the addition of lead if it isn't present in the ore. So lead is absolutely essential for the refining of, of uh, precious metals like silver and gold from ores. And the production of lead itself, because there was so much of it in Britain, led to this massive expansion of the use of lead across the Roman world in, in, in many different forms. And as I say in New Rome, my most recent book, this uh, uh, it really translates to lead becoming the plastic of its, of its age, or one really should say that plastic is the lead of our age um, because of the, uh, the the toxic cycle of the, the use of, of plastics and the way that it uh, affects the environment after its use. And lead, of course, is what was the same in the Roman world. It was uh, absolutely destructive to the health of humans and animals and to ecosystems, but at the same time was ubiquitous and essential in so many made things that the Romans uh, employed across the empire yeah so we'll get to its uses in a moment can you tell us a little bit about the the costs of the production or the extraction in the mine so we're talking about these vast mines right in in spain with all of these shafts where like they were worked by slaves who died miserably like is that's the picture one sometimes hears is that what you're talking about well, yeah, well, let's turn to that. I mean, you're, you're right. You're referring to Strobo, I think, who estimates that, you know, there were 40,000 uh, slaves in a single silver mine, Cartagena in Spain, uh, which was active throughout our period and, and later. Um, that's an extraordinary number, if it's accurate. And we, we tend to, of course, look at high numbers like that and wonder whether someone is exaggerating. But there's no reason for Strabo to have exaggerated. I mean, he's giving an estimate of how many people it took. To and if we to put that in context, I think, you know, if, if you're looking at, let's say, slavery in the USA, 
according to the National Humanities Centre, I was looking at this the other day, working up something on the, the broader project, De Devastating Beauty. And I believe that there were around 4 million slaves in the USA in 1860, and around 3.6 million of those worked on farms and plantations. Um, so I would say that there, there must have been as many slaves working on farms and plantations in the Roman world, but also in many, many other industries, including mining. If we think that the Roman Empire was around 60 million people at its height. Some people say as low as 30 million, but let's say it's 60 million. And 20% of those would have been enslaved, according to many estimates. Then you've got 12 million slaves in an empire of around 2 million square miles at its height under Trajan. Um, the USA in 1860, not including the territories, would have been about the same size. Today, the USA is about 4 million square miles, including the West. Um, uh, but at the time, there were no slaves, of course, held in the territories around the West. So in the slaveholding areas of uh, America, you had, let's say, 4 million slaves in 2 million square miles. And in the Roman Empire, you'd have about 12 million slaves in the same amount of space. Uh, so it was a much, much greater slave-owning society, reliant on slave labor than the USA at the height of slavery before the Civil War. Um, and the human costs, therefore, extraordinary, because so many of these people worked in absolutely appalling conditions, such as in mining and metallurgy. Uh, but they also, of course, were ubiquitous in every other form of industry. So the broader project that I'm looking on does look at this, the human costs of, of manufacturing, of creativity, of the production of beautiful things. Um, uh, looking specifically at the problems that mining created for mining communities, or I call them metal communities, um, yes. People were specifically at the, in the earlier period enslaved. I mean, the, these mines were worked by imperial slaves, prisoners of war, people captured uh, and kept in the worst conditions. But even through to the later uh, period, the, the Byzantine period, you still had people who were no longer enslaved as such, but were indentured. They were in, unable to leave mining metal communities. They, they had to work there. And if they fled, according to the Theodosian Code, then they would be brought back. And anyone who helped them flee, such as captains of ships, if people jumped onto a ship and sailed away, themselves would be punished, fined um, for helping. And so people were bound to the mines and their children were bound to the mines and their children were bound to the mines because the production of metals was so important. Uh, the mining and the smelting tended to take place very close to each other if sufficient fuel was available because, of course, that cut down on transportation costs. And so only a fraction of an ore would become metal, and that metal could then be transported rather than transporting vast quantities of ore away from uh, mines, which is why I think of them as metal communities rather than mining communities, because the mining itself might be terrible for health, but it was really the smelting which was destructive to human health and the environment. Yes, and being condemned to the mines is a punishment in Roman law. Yeah. Are we, are we thinking, too, of the impact on health in terms of the, the, the smelting itself. I mean, smelting of, of the ores produced all manners of uh, gases and aerosols that would be released into the local atmosphere that would um, damage human health, but also would damage the environment. So if we look at the environmental um, damage first, rather than the health damage, the smelting facility would be contaminated by lead. And that could be at toxic levels for any creature from a uh, from lichen through snails that feed on lichen through birds that collect lichen to put in their um or lichen if you prefer to, to put in their nests to anything that eats snails or insects to honeybees that uh, collect pollen from flowers where lead deposits have been put down uh, and of course then through the process of 
bioaccumulation and biomagnification that we're familiar with today through DDT and other chemical substances used on crops. As you move up the food chain, the, the uh, level of contamination gets higher and higher until it becomes lethal in some of the things that humans themselves would eat and in the products that they would have eaten as well. So, of course, the, the Romans used a huge amount of honey um, because they didn't have sugar cane. And lead itself, of course, was used as a sweetener, but we could come to that later. But honey was used as a sweetener and, and honey uh, was replete with lead in areas where smelting took place. It was used for weaning children. So people were giving lead to their their, their young kids in honey. It, it would have been in pretty much everything that people ate and it would have been in the soil itself where crops were grown. And as you cultivate the soil, you drive the lead further down into the soil, right into the root zone of, of crops so that uh, it, then the crops take the lead from the soil and they put it straight into the people who eat the crops and to the animals that eat the fodder, which then the people eat. Um, so not good. Yes, this should dispel yeah. any sort of images of pastoral pre-modern purity, pre-industrial purity of the Roman landscape. It's Absolutely. Not kind of apocalyptic One sometimes. thing we should say is that this isn't limited to places where people are smelting lead because they were limited and they were in certain places. It's It, it took place whenever objects that contained lead were recycled, especially lead itself, which was constantly recycled in the smiths that were in every single uh, town and city in the Roman world. And there's been a very nice recent study on Gerash, Gerasa, in Jordan, looking at exactly this, the accumulation of um, high-level heavy metal toxins in, in the wadi outside of the city and other places through this constant recycling of, of lead and other materials because there is no lead mine in the vicinity of, of, of Jarash. Right. Okay, so we'll get to the cities in a moment. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the uses of lead? You called it the plastic of its age uh, or plastic today is the lead of our age. Uh, so what sorts of things did the Romans and Byzantines use it for? It was obviously most famously used in the creation of water pipes, not everywhere, terracotta pipes and, and other and stone pipes were used, but uh, the city of Rome itself and Pompeii and other places have found thousands of, of lead water pipes and isotope analysis of this lead shows that a great deal of it came from Spain and and indeed in Pompeii, which was destroyed in 79 um, CE, you find lead from Britain, which was only conquered in uh, about 30 years earlier. So you know that immediately lead was taken from those mines transported to uh, Italy itself, used in the creation of water um, infrastructure in Pompeii and then destroyed. And it was used in, in Rome and throughout the empire for, for that. Um, but in every form of construction, every column that you see is either either held together by iron clamps or, or, or lead is, 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 is used to help clamp blocks together. Uh, lead is used uh, to form anything that carries water, gutters, as well as pipes. Um, uh, it can be used on roofs, as, as we know. I mean, when uh, Notre Dame in Paris burned, uh, there were some reports, although not widely reported, that uh, of the massive lead pollution that was caused there with that uh, lead roof that was uh, from the medieval period. Can you imagine the amount of pollution that would have been produced every single time Constantinople burned? And then they just put the lead roofs back on the buildings again. Mm -hmm. And then they burned again a few years later with riots and other things. So it was used in every form of construction. It was even used to line ships because um, shipworms uh, would, of course, try to bore into the wooden hulls of ships. And so to prevent this in the Roman world, sheets of lead were hammered and, and uh, attached to uh, the hulls of ships. 
And then, of course, these were regularly scraped so that the barnacles could come off of the hulls, and at the same time, they would scrape lead and that would fall down to the the, the, the harbor shore, the, the harbor floor, and be eaten up by uh, mollusks and 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 shellfish, and then eaten by uh, fish and and birds, and then it would get into that um, those ecosystems and it would poison people. Even in places like Alexandria, where they were nowhere near lead-producing facilities, nonetheless, their harbor taking uh, sediment samples from those people see enormous enormous leaps in the amount of lead in the sediment layer yeah so you know here in chicago lead pipes were used in the water supply until i think 1986 it wasn't until then that they phased them out and uh, many of the buildings here still have them and uh, i've been collecting uh, articles about the problems of lead possibly in our water here i'm not sure that there's much that we can do um, but it remains a perennial problem, especially when it comes to the pipes. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the scale of the Roman lead industry. So how do we know, for example, that there was more lead production during the Roman Empire than before or after? Um, and how do we measure the age of lead? We see, I mentioned earlier, the the geomorphically stable areas where lead accumulation is measured. So in sediment cores, you can see more lead from the Roman period than in anything that went before and in any period afterwards until you approach the high middle ages and then through to the industrial period where it leaps, of course, with the uh, addition of uh, tetraethyl lead to fuel, but also the use of lead uh, in paint. And lead has always been used in paint because it gives you amazing coverage it's very opaque, and so and it allows the paint to um, to give you good coverage. And the Romans, of course, used huge amounts of lead in paint. So the richer you were in the Roman world, the more likely you were perhaps to ingest a lot of lead because you might have uh, frescoes on your wall, you might have murals, you might have other kinds of painting which other people wouldn't have had. And at the same time, you might also have access to uh, higher quality pots and pans, which would have had lead, and you would have melted. You would have used lead in the sweetening of things, uh, and you would have perhaps, um, you know, boiled down your wine to produce very sweet wines, which would have uh, acquired the sweetness from lead that was being pulled out of the pans themselves, or brine pans, where you know people were using lead brine pans to 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 um, produce salt. So people who could afford salt and and sweet things and and paintings were also exposed to a great deal more lead than than others. Um, but, you know, when, when lead is ubiquitous, then it has an enormous impact on human health. And that's another way of measuring quite how much lead was in the environment in the Roman world, because you see it in the bones and in the teeth of uh, Roman skeletons. So Roman period bodies, which have been excavated uh, across the Roman world, but particularly in, in Britain, where there's been an interest in this uh, lately, and in the teeth in particular, um, the enamel of teeth, you find levels of lead that are unprecedented before. And very close um, comparisons have been made between um, Iron Age bones in similar sites or the same sites and Roman Age bones to show quite how much more lead was in the system, quite how much lead was in circulation and was entering the human body. Of course, lead enters the human body uh, through breathing it in, or through ingestion, and a lot more uh, can stay in the body if it's breathed in. So smelting can be a terrible thing. But ingestion of lead, uh, whether that's through uh, eating things from 
soil where lead is present or from drinking things in the, which have been used in a produced from lead vessels or drinking water which has been running through lead pipes that aren't um, calcified. Uh, all of these methods were, uh, were transplanting lead into human bodies in vast amounts. And this was particularly damaging to children. Uh, the body mistakes lead for calcium, which is a very cruel trick because calcium is so essential in the development of children and mm -hmm. in so many systems in the human body relating to the production of bones and teeth, of course, but also brain development. Um, and Although human adults can easily be lead po poisoned by lead and get lead poisoning, um, children it's, it's much easier for children because they transplant less of that lead immediately into their bones and teeth. So only about 70% of the lead that enters a child's body uh, goes into bones and teeth and 30% goes into soft tissue, including the production of, of brain tissue. And so uh, the child's blood-brain barrier is, is immature, and so uh, lead passes into the brain and the body mistakes it for calcium and uses it in, in neurotransmitters and things that people would, you know, that calcium is essential for brain development, but also for brain function. And when the body mistakes lead for ca for calcium, then it starts pushing it into brain and, and, ca and causing developmental difficulties for, for children. Uh, so that even if they didn't die immediately of lead poisoning, uh, nonetheless, their development was severely compromised by high levels of lead in their system. And another cruel irony, of course, is that if the human body mistakes uh, lead for calcium, and calcium is essential for the development of children, but also in the production of breast milk, then, none, then, then when mothers were breastfeeding their children, their body would extract lead as well as calcium from their bones mm. to put into breast milk, which they would then to, um, to feed their children. And so they were putting whatever lead was in their body into their growing children. And so that it, children were simply being overloaded with the lead from the, the, the system uh, as they were growing up uh, in the Roman world. And we see this in, uh, in looking at their bones and looking at their teeth. And of course, even when children were growing a little older, those that um, survived infancy, and young childhood, they would then lose their teeth and be forming their teeth uh, between the ages of, let's say, six and 12. And when you uh, form tooth enamel, then it picks up environmental signals from the area where you were born, but it also implants um, evidence of the toxins that were present in that environment. We find huge amounts of uh, lead in the teeth of children. Um, and a recent study from the UK, the University of Durham has, has shown that um, the the bones of the the teeth and bones of older people, but particularly the teeth of people who lived longer, have less lead in them. And you would imagine that's counterintuitive because, after all, the longer you live, the more chances you have of accumulating lead in your system. But of course, not in your tooth enamel because that's fully formed early on. And so, actually, the, the teeth of children are fuller of lead because those are likely children who had terrible health consequences, uh, perhaps associated with the accumulation of lead, and therefore they died younger. We can't say that for sure because there are so many other ways of dying in the Roman world. But what we can say is that older people with less lead in their teeth lived longer lives. Um, we also know that people with less lead in their system um, were taller. Um, we know that lead makes people shorter. It affects stature. It affects the onset of puberty as well. Uh, and uh, we can see across the Roman world in our period, people seem to have been smaller particularly in Roman Britain, where lead was absolutely ubiquitous, people seem to have been three centimetres shorter than their Iron Age predecessors. And 
remarkably than the Anglo-Saxons that came afterwards. And one could attribute this to different uh, uh, things that people ate um, and lifestyle choices, et cetera, et cetera. And all of those things would matter and those things would be important. But we can't discount the impact of the massive amounts of lead that we also find in specifically in the Roman period, where people are shorter, they seem to live less healthy lives, the children seem to thrive less and to die younger. And it seems that you know a good deal of this might be due to the massive and massively increased amounts of lead in the environment in the Roman period in Britain. Yes, I've seen some of this data cited in arguments about you know how life was better before and after the empire. Um, that in many respects the Roman Empire had adverse health consequences. Uh, now you mentioned earlier that lead was used to sweeten food. Um, now. I can't say that I've tasted lead anytime recently. I'm like, I, that's not the mental picture that I had of lead if I were to ingest it. Um, is it sweet? I mean, how does it work as a sweetener? I, I've, I've never, like you, I've never tried to sweeten anything with lead. Um, I, I don't think I will either. Um, but my understanding of this is that um, it was used in producing uh, different kinds of must. So when you um, when you uh, were to boil down grape juice to different concentrations, it would produce... Uh, degrees of sweetness and you could use that in sweetening wine um, and in sweetening other things that you might be cooking or producing and so yeah lead was used as a sweetener um, because it would be it would be drawn out of the uh, the pans that you were using to cook rather than being used as in as as an additive itself although it became an additive um, and of course honey was used as a sweetener as I said earlier honey could very easily absorb a huge amount of of lead as well. It wasn't the only thing that one would find in, in Roman cooking, of course, but um, right. as we now know from all sorts of guidelines, any amount of lead that one ingests is dangerous. Any amount of lead that you can measure in, in blood indicates a, a, a potential health threat, and it's a chronic health threat throughout life. So there, you know, the, we now have um, diachronic studies of people who are in, infected by lead, and all, all of us um, uh, have been affected by lead in a way that our children are not, because we grew up in an age before the complete banning of lead in, in fossil fuel, uh, in, mm. in gasoline. And even though lead was banned in paint early on in a number of countries, still it wasn't completely banned and was produced in some places. And, you and we, you know, we see these, these problems um, all the time blowing up. So a lot of children, of course, who grew up in old houses, people worry about the, the paint and whether that's been a problem, but they should also worry about the amount of lead that's left in the urban environment from uh, its deposition in the age of the burning of um, of leaded gasoline. And that age hasn't ended because leaded gasoline is still used in um, propeller planes. It's still used by uh, recreational race car drivers, not NASCAR and the big drivers, but people who, um, you know, who who tune up um, old sports cars or BMWs or whatever in their garage and um, and then take them to a local track. They don't. They are permitted to buy, for recreational purposes, high octane leaded fuel, and oh. some studies have demonstrated that um, uh, within a month after one of these races takes place, within 50 miles, you find toxic levels of lead being deposited in the local environment. And one of these races, a study demonstrates, actually produces more lead emissions than a small regional airport in a single year. Oh. So lead is still in our environment and still being produced. Uh, just we have greater knowledge of it, and we also understand the importance of remediation when it is discovered. 
for, for, for health. The Romans, of course, knew nothing of this, and the accumulation of lead in their environment couldn't be easily remediated, and, and therefore it would continue for, in some cases, hundreds of years. There's a study yeah. of snails in, in France, which has shown that, and the snails that are feeding on, and on vegetation in the soil is still uh, producing toxic levels of lead in the snails 500 years later. I remember the transition to unleaded fuel. In fact, I, I think it happened around the time when I was learning to drive or began to drive. And I just kind of instinctively learned to ask for unleaded you know, gasoline at the pump. And I continued to call it that for, I think, decades afterwards, even when there was no longer any leaded option available, I just continued to call it unleaded um, until at some point, I think at some point a gasoline attendant asked, like, why are you calling that? Like, you know, that we don't have any leaded gasoline anyway. Um, but yeah, I remember that transition. Um, was anyone in antiquity aware of the negative health consequences of lead? I think somewhat yes and overwhelmingly no. Um, most people probably understood that if you lived near a site where people were smelting ores, then people were terribly unhealthy. Um, exactly what led to that um, is not clear. Whether they attributed it directly to lead or to all of the other horrible things that come when you smelt that. I mean, if, when you smelt certain ores, they release all sorts of toxins, mercury, arsenic, antimony, uh, sulfur dioxide. All of these things are very bad for human health and, and lead, uh, add, add lead into that mix. Um, but I think also, you know, yes, people were aware of it, but at the same time, uh, it was so important and so essential to daily life that the risk was considered, I think, worth taking, especially since the risk wasn't being taken by the people who would make the choices. Um, so they were allowing people who lived near those sites to have very, very unhealthy lives. But mm. I don't think of course, of the massive consequences of smelting and the release of lead in, in local environments. They couldn't have been aware of this. And of course, even if they were aware, they couldn't have really done a very great deal about it without swearing off of the use of uh, all metals in the same way, non-ferrous metals, in the same way that we, of course, you know, haven't really sworn off the use of all plastics. Right. We've done certain things that make the environment better by removing the things that we know are, have absolutely devastating effects on human health and the environment. But at the same time, we continue to do things, whether through personal choice or, uh, or you know, lack of alternative, that we know are damaging. So was there any attempt to place um, workshops that used lead or that produced uh, lead objects in towns? Was there any attempt to place them on the periphery or outside? Uh, possibly because there was this kind of vague awareness that being in their proximity uh, was dangerous? Like, do we see anything like that archaeologically? Well, of course, we, we're aware that certain noxious things were kept in parts of the city where people, in terms of, you know, Constantinople, we know that the tanneries were kept in a certain part of town because they stank. Mm. Um, and so they were also, you know, harmful to people's health, but it was probably because of the smell. Uh, uh, more than anything that they were kept in certain areas. But in the same way that all industries were grouped together in the pre-modern world, yes, of course, you know, smiths 
would be grouped together or silver working workshops would be grouped together. But that was also a function of the way that things were made. I mean, we know from St. Augustine, but also in just, you know, other studies of, of how craftsmen worked in the ancient world and the medieval world, that they didn't all do everything. They all did one thing very well and then passed it on to somebody else. And so the creation of a single beautiful object might involve the highly skilled labor of a number of different people in a number of different workshops grouped in the same part of town. Whether or not that was done for health reasons is terribly unlikely. I think it was more likely that, you know, your your silversmiths would be in a certain part of town and it wasn't because it was, this wasn't because the use of their furnaces was considered deleterious to human health in that area. But they certainly, you know, wouldn't be in the same part of town that uh, uh, the richest people might live or have their largest houses. Um, right. Yeah, I think I recall that the 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 most noxious workshops were the leather workers. Yeah. Because of the, the stench. Uh, and those were required to be like away, um, but not necessarily because of any of these health concerns. Um, so in your paper, you referred to the whole lead industry. Uh, you, you framed it as a kind of violence. Um, can you elaborate a little on that? Uh, there are so many forms of violence in the Roman Empire, uh, but I found it striking that you found that the whole sort of lead industry to be an example of this. How do we understand that as violence? Sure. This was a, you, you referred to the paper, and my paper was something I wrote to give at Dumbarton Oaks last month, and, and I framed it as environmental violence and looking at violence in its broadest terms. I mean, people tend to understand violence on a, a relatively simple level and that uh, as committing violent acts hitting someone over the head with a hammer um hurting someone you know damaging their person or their property is a violent act and that is indeed violence and that would be considered to be direct violence and the accumulation of, of individual acts of violence or in, you know you've studied conjugal violence i think as well i mean the individual acts of violence and and retribution uh, themselves would amount to a great deal in any society, but these are dwarfed by the things that we, particularly in the academy now, of course, have been thinking about for a number of years, like um, uh, uh, structural violence. The the the, the institutions that um, uh, of any given society, uh, which maintain um, elements of violence between individuals, or are violent to members of that society. Um, so structures which, uh, through which people uh, end up living less pleasant lives or damage is done to them in a way that it isn't done to other people and which could be ameliorated or avoided by the change in certain structures. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, you might have cultural violence, which is um, attitudes and ideas and practices in a society which are pertinent to that particular culture, which sustain uh, structural violence. So you might say that, for example, genital mutilation is a cultural, a form of cultural violence, even though, of course, it, it, it results in a, a series of individual acts of direct violence upon uh, young children. And so over time, you can see that structural violence and cultural violence are more substantive um, and indeed more substantial than individual acts of violence, even when accumulated. And so this broader understanding of what violence might mean or does mean allows us to measure relative amounts of violence across contemporary cultures. And one of the best ways of doing this is looking at the most obvious uh, thing, which is 
uh, average life expectancy in any given society. So in a society which has higher levels of structural and cultural violence, one would find that people die uh, younger and also that they tend to have more diseases, they live unhealthier lives, um, and they're shorter because they, nutrition is poorer, healthcare is poorer, people don't flourish, they don't thrive, and, and therefore this is reflected in human remains in, in the past and in, in modern societies. We have records we can, which can show us which societies uh, have greater levels of violence. Um, beyond that, of course, uh, one could say that in the last two centuries, perhaps a little longer, we've made enormous strides in, um, uh, in changing uh, the levels of violence in our society. We might think that we've been through some very violent centuries in terms of direct violence, but actually in terms of structural violence, the improvements in healthcare, in public health, clean water, vaccinations, and other things like that, we've actually diminished the amount of total violence in societies considerably. Um, and therefore, we are a much less violent world than we were um, 200 years ago. However, we are therefore on the very cusp of do undoing every single good thing that we've done through the one thing that we haven't changed, which is our attitude to the environment. And so everything that we've done mm -hmm. to improve human life across the world could be undone if we don't change our attitudes to climate change, for example, quickly enough to prevent catastrophes, which therefore would it wouldn't matter whether people were uh, able to uh, immunize their children or whether they had clean water if their home was destroyed or underwater or, or they could no longer live there. And so this is what I mean by environmental violence, things that um, human societies have done uh, to up, up into and including ecocide, the destruction of species um, and the destruction of environments, which human societies have done to the environment through time. And so therefore, uh, in that paper and more broadly in the project Devastating Beauty, uh, which looks at metallurgy alongside of a number of other things, I'm looking really at environmental violence in that very broad sense. What is it that human societies have done and what it is, is in particular Rome uh, through all of its periods, including Byzantium, has done in the production of things, beautiful things? What are the consequences for the environment and human health and flora and fauna of the production of these beautiful things, in the case that we're talking about today, in the production of things using metals. Yeah, that's very well put. And it's also an important component of the, the kind of material turn that you're talking about, especially in environmental studies um, and the study of the ancient world that we consider the non-human environment as well. Um, and some scholars will call this a sort of post-human turn uh, where it's not not everything is about people, and so you've already mentioned the effect on on various uh, you know animals. You mentioned snails and mollusks and so on. Um, is there anything that you would like to add about the Roman lead industry and the kind of damage that it did to the natural environment, sort of looking beyond human beings? Yes, and we could even take that in a slightly different direction and say it's not just, of course, in the Roman world. Um, it's increasingly people are becoming aware of how the onset of metallurgy and silver lead metallurgy in particular, but not exclusively in all cultures has led to this form of environmental violence. And so there have been some nice studies on medieval um, cows looking at the damage done to herds in Poland. Uh, and another study which is focused on uh, storks and herons in, in Edo period Japan, but actually also looks at all sorts of other domesticated and wild creatures to see the levels of lead in their system when metallurgy begins 
in Japan, or in, at least in a particular part of Japan. And the paper, when I gave it at Dumbarton Oaks, that was one of the things that was picked up in the final comments by Tom Cummins, the director there, was just wondering from his perspective as, a, as somebody fascinated by pre-Columbian uh, South and Central America, how one could measure very differently the health and environmental outcomes of the very different um, periods in which metallurgy began in the Andes and in Central America. So the broader impacts there across the world. And you could say the same for um, just looking at uh, the Southern Hemisphere. There was far, far less um, pollution in the Southern Hemisphere until very recently. And then in the way that one sees a sudden spike in ice cores of lead aerosol deposition um, with the onset of Roman metallurgy in Greenland and the Arctic, in the Antarctic, one doesn't see this until the very last years of the 19th century, when suddenly lead is discovered in southern uh, Australia, and then it's smelted uh, oh. at Port Pirie. And at that very period, you get exactly the same southern spike in, in lead aerosol deposition from smelting um, in the Lordome and other glaciers in Antarctica. So, you know, we, we reproduce this same cycle up until very, very recently. I, I think that's a great way uh, place to bring this to a close. Uh, but can you say a little bit more about your project? I mean, you called it Devastating Beauty, which is quite an arresting title, if that's the title. Um, so what's the big picture that you're looking at in that? Is is it what you've just been talking about? Broadly speaking, there is a website, devastatingbeauty.org. You could have a look in there. I keep a little blog on there as well, to uh, things that I'm reading. Um, but it, it's effectively looking at the way that um, in the Roman world, um, the production of things, which are now in major museum collections. And I try to enter each chapter, each aspect of the project through an object. Uh, for example, in the case of lead, it's it's the lead coffin of an infant discovered in, in uh, Syria, Palestine. Um, and looking through this object at what happened culturally to the society where it was used, but also more broadly to those who were involved in the production, including enslaved workers, as I've said before, but everybody who lived in a society which produced these beautiful things, whether they were with silver lead or with wood or plants or dyes. So, you know, the production of dyes um, to uh, even purple dye produced by the murex, for example, led to the devastation of communities of murex, but at the same time also to the devastation of places where massive amounts of shells piled up and then, play, and then you know whole cities were left or abandoned, like Menings on the island of Jerba, north of in North Africa. So you can see how production on scale of beautiful things led to devastation um, in the in the natural world through a variety of different materials, including shells. Um, um, quarrying and other things. Uh, I don't want to get too broad, but you can take a look at the website and see uh, what I'm, I'm thinking about and how the, pro uh, the project is progressing. I start with um, metals because as I said at the very beginning, I think that is the most devastating uh, uh, things, uh, the most devastating industry that, that humans have contrived. Also one of the most useful, of course, how could, how could the Roman world have uh, become what it was without metallurgy, right. but at the same time, um, the, the, the results uh, were devastating. And other than a kind of aborted discussion, uh, which took place 20, 30 years ago about the impacts of lead on health through lead pipes and other things, apart from that, it really hasn't been looked at in this broad sense. Yes, it's quite a well-done website. I, so I encourage everybody to go look at it, Devastating Beauty. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast uh, to lay this all out before us. It's a, it's a, 
technical area in some respects. You've done a lot of work to familiarize yourself with um, some pretty esoteric scholarship, but someone needs to pull this together every once in a while so that lay people, you know, like myself can access this this area. Because I I left to my own devices, I tend to drift to the just the beauty part and forget the devastating part. So it's important to be reminded of that. Thank you, Paul. Thank you.